You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are continuing our series called Policy Meets the People, taking a look at how elected officials and policymakers' decisions impact your life and how they might influence your vote. The WDET news team is going to examine the role that politics and policy play in regional transportation for this Part of Policy Meets the People. So tune in to Morning Edition, All Things Considered, Detroit Today, and check out all of the reporting at WDET.org. Here in Michigan, we live in a special zone that gives federal agents wide discretion to stop, question, and detain people that they suspect of committing immigration violations. They can enter private property, they can set up highway checkpoints, and they can use race and ethnicity as factors in their decision-making. That's because all of Michigan falls in what's called the United States border zone. But it actually has little to do with the border itself. Most densely populated areas in the United States fall within it because it extends into nearly every major metropolitan area. In fact, more than 65% of all Americans live in the border zone, which raises a few questions. What does this mean for civil liberties, for instance? And is the border zone designation really just a proxy for harassment, particularly of people of color? That's where we want to take the conversation in this second half of the show. And joining us to discuss this issue is Tanvi Misra, uh, a staff writer for CityLab who covers immigrant communities, housing, economic inequality, and culture. Uh, She recently wrote a piece in CityLab titled Inside the Massive U.S. Border Zone. uh, Tanvi, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Also here is Juan Caballero, an attorney and West Michigan legal fellow with the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan. Juan, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Tanvi, let's start uh, with an explanation of this border zone and why federal agents have special powers inside that zone. Absolutely. So um, as anyone who's sort of left and come back to the country knows, you know, um, the borders um, where we have ports of entry, um, there are certain rights that are suspended at those places. So, you know, your Fourth Amendment search and seizure rights, those are sort of suspended because uh, understandably the country wants to make sure that they're um, regulating who comes in and out. Um, What a immigration law does is that it also extends some of those um, or suspends some of those rights further inside the country. So it allows um, Customs and Border Protection to set up temporary checkpoints and permanent checkpoints, you know, patrol highways, board buses, trains and other vehicles um, within what was described as a reasonable distance um, in the law. Mm -hmm. And regulations in the 1950s set that to up to 100 miles. So that's really what the border zone is. And, you know, the reasoning behind it is really that um, it's to monitor and intercept uh, illegal entrants that have sort of escaped um, and, you know, um, bypassed the checkpoints at the border itself. And and what does what is the sort of, uh, I guess, the, the, the legal context for this? I mean, this idea of suspending... Uh, parts of people's constitutional rights. There's there's something quite powerful about that idea. Where does that come from? 
Yeah. So the I I mean it really comes down to uh, you know what is in the national interest and national security and you know when we're talking about immigration all of that becomes pretty fraught mm-hmm. uh, and in the, in when it comes to regulating immigration um, or regulating what are perceived threats from um, immigrants authorized or otherwise mm-hmm. there seems to be um, sort of a trumping of that aspect over a lot of other rights and we've seen this in other play out in other sort of court cases you know you've seen it in the travel ban um, uh, but but that seems to be the case here as well where in 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 favor of uh, quote unquote sort of protecting the US from uh, uh, you know threats that are coming from outside of it there are certain suspension of rights within it as well yeah yeah, um, uh, Juan, uh, do you do you feel as if uh, these are constitutional uh, border zones? These power, they, these zones that exist. Uh, is there something about this that we ought to be questioning uh, at the sort of fundamental level? Uh, certainly. I mean, when it comes to the existence of the zone, while we do have these laws and regulations in place. I mean, the Constitution still does apply, right? Um, there was a misnomer that was fluttered around a few years ago about this being a Constitution-free zone or mm-hmm. treated as such. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, while the premise was to sort of convey the fact that CBP operates largely with impunity in this zone, what in, actually happens in reality is that they, they act as though the Constitution doesn't apply when it still does. Um, one of the sort of major hurdles in this is that law enforcement, uh, CBP is one of the largest law enforcement agencies in the country, certainly, and one of the largest in the world, and it operates with little transparency and little accountability. Um, So it certainly is a major problem, um, and it's certainly something that we've been trying to work on for quite some time now. Yeah. Uh, Can you give us some examples of ways in which uh, we see federal agents using these powers here in Michigan? And can you give us examples of instances in which you believe these powers are being abused here in Michigan? Sure. Um, well, uh, if I could extend it maybe a little bit beyond Michigan first, mm-hmm. and then we can focus on Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some high-profile instances of individuals being stopped at border checkpoints, for instance, in recent years. One of the most, uh, you know, one of the ones that what became particularly viral was that of Rosa Maria, and that was in Arizona, um, where this individual who was a 10-year-old girl with cerebral palsy was paused at a border checkpoint, and uh, Border Patrol agents actually accompanied her uh, she was traveling with her cousin to receive emergency services, um, and they accompanied her to the hospital. They monitored, they kept her basically in custody the entire time. Um, and while they eventually did release her from custody, it was quite some time later, and after a large public uh, advocacy campaign had been mounted against what had happened. Hmm. Here in Michigan, um, and, and sort of in addition to that, what we've seen a lot of is also just... Um, a lot of forms of public transportation in or near the border have been subjected to warrantless searches by Border Patrol and CBP, uh, which is Customs and Border Protection. Right. right. Um, here in Michigan, we've seen a couple of instances in the last year or so. Um, we've seen it around the country. We've seen it on Amtrak trains. We've seen it um, in one case on a domestic flight where Border Patrol basically stopped everyone who was boarding the plane and demanded uh, identification from everyone. Hmm. And these are instances where large the travel is happening within the confines of the country. There's really no reason to be carrying a passport or another form of identification. Um, but Border Patrol basically treats these ter- these, air, um, these instances as if 
they have free reign to ask everyone for identification. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Tunvi Mizra, a staff writer for City Lab who covers immigrant communities, housing, economic inequality, and culture. She recently wrote a piece in City Lab titled Inside the Massive U.S. Border Zone. Also with us is Juan Caballero, uh, an attorney and West Michigan legal fellow with the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan. Uh, we're talking about the idea of border zones, uh, places in which uh, immigration officials have powers that they would not outside of those zones, powers to uh, question people, to stop people, to set up checkpoints uh, in places that uh, you couldn't in the rest of the country. Turns out, though, 65% of the entire U.S. population and around 75% of the U.S. Hispanic population uh, lives within this border zone. Here in Michigan, we are in that border zone. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think about this idea of uh, different rules applying in different places in our country. Uh, if you are somebody who lives in a community where you see this kind of activity uh, by Border Patrol agents and other authorities, give us a call. Tell us what that looks like. Tell us what that feels like uh, in your neighborhood or in your city. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Kimberly on Facebook says, I think we need to talk about what rights actually mean if we allow certain agents to violate them without due process. Uh, let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, excellent. Excellent conversation, as always. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad you raised the point of how many people live within the the 100-mile border zone. Um, many people would be surprised to know that people who live in Chicago area are in that zone, notwithstanding the fact Chicago is more than 100 miles from the border, mm -hmm. but it's a city on the Great Lakes, and the Great Lakes is considered a, a border region, even though it's like is and the Supreme Court upheld up oh, Ed, I think uh, I think your phone's cutting out there a little bit but but I appreciate the call uh, and the and the comments uh, Tunvi, I want to read just a little from uh, your piece about this you say this zone which hugs the entire edge of the United States and runs a hundred air miles inside includes some of the densest cities, New York, Philadelphia, and Chicago. It also includes all of Michigan and Florida, half of Ohio and Pennsylvania, according to a prior rough analysis by Will Lowe, a data scientist at MIT. So, I mean, again, this, this, I think the question of uh, this being defined as a border zone, uh, it, it extends so far beyond areas that even – uh, are within proximity of borders that it, I think it's reasonable to ask about, you know, the other other kinds of motives or other kinds of foundations for this kind of uh, activity. This really is not just about a border. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem so given just the uh, <laughs> geography of it. Right. But um, uh, that is what it's stated as. I mean, it is stated as another way of sort of uh, another bulwark against, you know, illegal immigration. Um, that's sort of the justification for it. But yeah, I mean, I think what I was interested in finding out through this, um, I, I'd heard of this border zone before, and it was very striking to me, you know, being here in D.C. that I was in it. Um, and what was really striking to me was, uh, you know, I really wanted to know who lives in the zone and the ACLU has done some good work and they had sort of estimated there was about two thirds. I wanted to see if I could confirm that and then, you know, break it down by uh, race and ethnicity. I think the reason I thought that was so important was because, um, and Juan can sort of talk to, uh, speak to this issue a little bit more, mm-hmm. but there there is a sort of wide breadth to use, as you mentioned at the very top of the conversation, race and ethnicity to stop people, to investigate them, to, you know, take them, detain them and take them into um, custody that could last, uh, um, you know, uh, several minutes or, uh, you know, maybe even up to an hour. Mm-hmm. So I think that that becomes um, a really... Uh, sort of it's just striking that in a in a sort of in within the space when there's 75% of the um country's hispanic population or and over 72% of the minority population that that you know is uh, something that is legally possible uh legally allowed um I, I also wanted to sort of, I think what um, our friend who was on the phone was trying to maybe signal was um, the legal precedent for this. And and that's really where it gets interesting. And again, I'm, I'm sure Juan can sort of talk to this a little bit more. But one thing I wanted to bring up was that there's a little bit of a difference in the 1970s. The Supreme Court upheld, you know, that you could use race and ethnicity as one of the standards. Mm-hmm. One, not the only, but one of the um, factors for stopping people. But in, the, in 2000... Um, there's a, a Ninth Circuit uh, District Court of Appeals uh, ruling that actually says, well, actually, you know, the demographics have really changed. So that can no longer be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the, that kind of interesting tension there as well, because yeah. and I think that's what I was really trying to get at in the piece is that once now that our demographics have changed to this extent, you know, does this does this legal sort of um, does this legal ruling actually hold up? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Juan, is there any legal action involving uh, a challenge to this issue right now? Uh, So I would actually, I mean, I think the way Tanvi summarized it is right on, where there have been some courts that have considered issues related to this, but we don't have any sort of nationwide Mm -hmm. or Supreme Court or even circuit precedent really addressing these issues of the constitutionality of the zone. Um, And that's sort of due to a variety of factors. But what we do know is right now, and again, Tom, you summarized it perfectly, is that the amount of suspicion that is needed to stop, for instance, someone who's driving in a highway in this border zone is significantly lower than anywhere else in the country. Right. And that's very problematic when, again, two-thirds of the population lives in the zone. It covers such a large swath, including parts that, I mean, largely aren't considered to be the border zone, right? Where if we were looking at a map, we would consider maybe Detroit um, to be part of the border zone. But if you mm-hmm. drive almost two hours away, you'd have to pass Lansing and keep going just to get out of that 100-mile zone right. if we were measuring from Lake Huron. Now, the problem is that Customs and Border Protection then defines for itself the regulations that it wrote to include basically not just Lake Huron as an international border, but the entire coast of Lake Michigan, Mm -hmm. which is how we end up with places like Chicago, Milwaukee, these other places which have basically no interaction with any sort of uh, 
border as we understand it as the public, um, but they are all treated like part of this border zone. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Let's go to Chip in Farmington Hills. Chip, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Hey. Thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. Go ahead. My question to you is very simple. I grew up on the Mexican border in El Paso, Texas. Mm-hmm. We never had a problem with Border Patrol doing their job. What I believe your, your uh, guests are suggesting here is that for some reason the Border Patrol, if they are anywhere farther than 10 feet from a booth at the border, that they can no longer do their job. I think it's impossible for Border Patrol and Customs agents to actually do their job without some sort of suspension of rights. Uh, they have the right to check your ID. You don't right. have to look... Uh, Latino for them to check your ID. Their job is Customs and Border Patrol. Right, uh, Chip. Uh, you're 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 sort of, uh, I, I guess, pushing back against a number of different things there, and 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 I think we should probably try to address them individually rather than than collectively. But but I I, I hear what you're saying, and and I want to try to get answers uh, for you. Let's start with this question of uh, distance. Uh, as Chip says, how can you enforce uh, immigration law if, if you don't come some distance off of uh, the border itself? Um, Juan, I'll start with you uh, on that question. Yeah, so I, I would sort of hit on two points. One, I would contextualize Chip's uh, comment within the larger immigration framework, right? Customs and Border Protection, their uh, directive is specifically tied to the border. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about interior immigration enforcement, uh, then we suddenly are talking about Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is mm-hmm. a separate federal agency, which is also tasked with the interior enforcement of these laws. Right. So what we're sort of cautioning against is this sort of um, directive drift within the agency as they continue to push uh, to expand their mandate, to expand the area that they patrol, when we actually have another federal agency that is tasked with that type of responsibility. Uh, the other point is that, you know, at least, you know, we, I can't speak to the facts on the ground in, in, on the southwest border, but here in Michigan, what we know, we've, uh, the ACLU of Michigan has actually been trying to collect data related to their policing practices in the state of Michigan, and what we know is that one in three of the people who are stopped or have an interaction with Border Patrol are U.S. citizens. Forty mm-hmm. percent um, of the population that's stopped is either a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident. Now, we have a little bit of data um, about the, the racial demographics, but we don't know. What's more, what sort of, uh, what's more problematic is also that we don't know where these police stops are. We're currently litigating this situation because CBP refuses to turn over any information they about where these stops are taking place, right. uh, where they're policing, where they're allocating their resources. Again, speaking to the lack of transparency with the agency. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation about border zones. Juan Caballero, attorney and West Michigan legal fellow with the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan. Thank you for being here with us on Detroit Today. And we're going to keep uh, Tanvi Misra, the staff writer from City Lab, for the next uh, segment. We're also going to be joined by Diego Bonasati, who is the legal services director for Michigan United here in uh, Detroit. So stay with us on Detroit Today. We'll be right back.
Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We're talking about border zones, border zones here in the United States, uh, which reach very far away from the actual borders between this nation uh, and others. We live in a border zone here in the state of Michigan, but so do 65% of the people in the United States live in a border zone. So that raises questions about what that actually means and whether the aggressive policing that takes place in those zones is appropriate for all of the places that it is permitted. Joining us for the conversation is Tanvi Misra, a staff writer for City Lab who covers immigrant communities, housing, economic inequality, inequality, and culture. She recently wrote a piece in City Lab titled Inside the Massive U.S. Border Zone. Uh, also with us now is Diego, ba- Diego Bonasati. He is the Legal Services Director for Michigan United. Diego, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for the invitation. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, Diego, talk about how these border zones affect people here in southeast Michigan from your perspective. So it's uh, – uh, Juan brought up uh, previously kind of like the, the difference between ICE and CBP, and they operate differently, right? Um, and ICE is usually much more covert mm-hmm. uh, when they're, they're moving off in plain clothes and then uh, doing raids and operations – CBP is is much more public in a sense that they're driving around in the green and whites. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they act like a kind of a police overlay. Um, and, you know, through clients and families and other people we've got that, you know, they're, they view them as trolling in parks, public yeah. parks, yeah. and on the streets in Southwest. I mean, and I think it's fair to say that with this current presidential administration's crackdown on immigration, not just illegal immigration, but also legal, we have seen uh, that's the face of it. It comes through these green and white cars that we see more of, that we see, I think, doing things that they weren't doing before. I mean, the aggression, if you're anywhere in a community that has a lot of immigrants right now, I think is it's very obvious. It's very visible. Yeah. It, it, and in fact, if, if you think about it, in the weeks after the inauguration, um, there was a, a sort of uh, uh, it, it was kind of like a Woodstock moment for, mm-hmm. for Homeland Security. You saw a lot of people being um, deported or turned away at airports during the first Muslim ban. And uh, even when lawyers got, you know, orders from federal district courts, they were ignoring them initially. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Ultimately, order was reimposed, but it was like people felt uh, certain individuals within Homeland Security seemed like they were liberated by the president to do, mm-hmm. um, you know, to behave badly. Yeah. Um, and we've seen that uh, we had, uh, for example, the mother of a person who's naturalized now came with a tourist visa and she was accused of fraud because mm-hmm. in her previous visit, she had changed her ticket, even though. The permit gave her, you know, it was allowed within the, the permit she had the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ended up being deported and having her visa canceled. Um, so, and that's a, that's a relatively minor uh, impact, but you've seen that, uh, that there seems to be a license from the president. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, on this. 
um, you you do a lot of work in in Southwest Detroit and with with immigrant communities. Tell us how they're responding to what we're seeing. Tell us uh, what what you're hearing from them about uh, this aggression and and how it changes daily life. There's a lot of fear. Um, there's a lot of fear, and and the thing that's that's surprising is, I I think. Um, you know, average Americans who are in favor of increased enforcement, they might just say, well, you know, they're only going after illegal folks. There's fear among permanent residents. There's fear among naturalized citizens. Um, and sometimes it's fear for their undocumented uh, family that they know mm -hmm. or who are about to get their papers. Um, but, but sometimes it's just like they don't, they don't know what's going to happen next. Um, and I think there's some people, there's more people applying for citizenship, that's that's kind of wobbled a bit, but part of it is like it's like a bomb shelter, yeah. right? It's like people want to go into some place that's safe, and they're hoping that that will do it. Yeah. Excuse me, um, uh, Tanvi. What uh, what Diego is saying here really again raises this question of the purpose of the zone, the idea that people who have legal status, for instance, are uh, as subject to uh, the kind of aggressive policing that uh, people who don't. I mean, that, that, that's always a question when you have, you know, a law that, that needs to be enforced is how, how much does it infringe on the rights of people who are not doing anything wrong? Is this, is this a question uh, that's being discussed at all at the at the at the federal level inside these agencies. In other words, how to respect more of the constitutional rights of people who are not uh, who are not violating the law. Um, well, my reporting showed that you know CBP is it says that they're thinking about it. They say that they have you know anti-discrimination policies in place. They have um, you know oversight over what what goes on at these checkpoints. But I think as Juan mentioned before, uh, it's really not um, clear to what level like how granular their data is and how how publicly available it is. It is very hard to get some of that data out. Um, and so I think questions about transparency are, are still very much, um, you know, sort of one of the big critiques that comes out. Um, one more point about sort of what Juan was talking about, what Diego was talking about, um, about legal legal status, right? I mean, I think there's, uh, when it comes to the powers that CBP has within the zone, uh, folks who have who have legal status also have to fear. I mean, just the data that I gathered from um, uh, Customs and Border Protection showed that in the last 10 years, and this is not just the um, current administration, this is also, you know, that means it goes back into the previous one, mm -hmm. uh, many, many more people with legal status were taken into custody at internal checkpoints. Mm -hmm. You know, some years in 2011, twice as many. So, you know, that does sort of lead you to a question, like, what are these checkpoints actually doing if not, if they're stopping more people who have legal status than people who are undocumented, as, you know, their sort of expressed purpose is to control illegal immigration. Right. Um, one more sort of data point that I mm -hmm. would want to mention that came up in my reporting. During the same time, apprehensions of people who were deportable, mm -hmm. that means who had some grounds for deportation, um, dropped by 50%. So they're, you know, like one sort of argument that I've heard is that they're actually being less effective as time goes on. And okay. Yeah. Uh, quickly, we've got about thirty seconds left. Go ahead. Sure. Diego. It's just like the number of agents has quadrupled 
since 1992. Wow. We went from 5,000 to over 21,000. Wow. wow. And uh, the numbers of people being apprehended at the border has gone from 1.6 million in 2000. We're now below 400,000. Right. And, and that always raises the question of what the purpose, again, is of these kinds of policies. Okay, Tanvi Misra, staff writer for City Lab. thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Also, Diego Bonasani, Legal Services Director for Michigan United. Thank you for being here as well. Thank you. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.